before, but all of those people who are presently or in the past school teachers think, why doesn't that always work in the classroom? You just stand up the front, automatic silence. Wouldn't that be wonderful in a classroom setting? I've got a little secret for you. This is an act. You might have noticed by the word Philippians, the Bible reading and what we're having here. So it is a slight deviation from our Acts series, uh, but just a passage that God had laid in my heart to uh, share with you this morning. Um, it's pretty un- uncommon that I would deviate from the thing uh, for a particular passage, but there are some times when that happens, and this morning is one of them. Uh, so I pray yeah, it'll be a blessing to all of us as we look to God's word. So let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the almighty good God who has been pleased to reveal himself to mankind. You didn't need to create us. You didn't even need to have anything to do with us if we did create us. But you desire to allow us to enter the blessing of a relationship with you. And even when we mess that up, you provided the way by which we can restore to you uh, through Jesus Christ. Lord, you haven't just hoped that we would become saved, but that we would grow to maturity, to reflect you well, but Lord, to set an example and to encourage and build one another up. And we pray as we look to your word this morning, And the words given to us through the Apostle Paul regarding standing firm and our spiritual stability, uh, that might be a benefit to us and change us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as a number of you know, we we moved houses last year and everything about the house we loved. But there was one minor little thing that we weren't that excited about. Tiles. Now, I'm not a tiler foe, but I haven't been put off by, hello, Frank Walker from National Tiles, or anything like that. But tiles are hard, and we've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old, which means that if you fall over, it's going to hurt a lot more than our previous home. But specifically, in our back patio, we have the same tiles that we have inside the house that are designed for interior use. Now, one of the things that means is that if they get wet, they get really, really slippery. And if you visited our house on a wet day or when the kids are playing, doing stuff with water, you've probably been warned. Now, in the interim, we've got like a strip of of carpet that's rubber-backed sort of between the backyard and the house to to kind of alleviate for that. We have purchased a product which is quite detailed to, to fix that up. But the reality is without those things... It is a really seriously unstable surface and it doesn't need to get particularly wet at all. And the result of the instability caused by that will lead to damage and hurt if something isn't done. So it becomes a priority when instability leads to damage and hurt. Now, I don't think anyone came here to talk about OH&S issues at our house. I mean, if that's your boat, then yeah, we can talk about it, but it excites you. But I think there is a principle which carries over to the reason why we are here this morning. To worship God 
to grow in our understanding of him, what it means to walk with him on a day-by-day basis. Because in reality, there are things which are a threat to our spiritual stability and we'd be unwise not to recognise them, but also to recognise what God has provided for us so that we can indeed stand firm. Whenever our spiritual health isn't at its best, it affects us deeply, but it doesn't just affect us, it affects those who are around us. And as Paul begins this passage, he begins basically with a command, stand firm like this. He's saying, stand firm, and I'm about to describe to you what it looks like to stand firm. It was a military term where they used to say, stand firm, no matter what comes your way, stand your ground. Then he advises them things to pursue, things to avoid, to avoid. Now, it's not a comprehensive list. This is not the three steps to make everyone grow in Christ and stand and grow in maturity. Obviously, Paul has taken three particular things to the scenario that he's addressing there in Philippi. But in the sovereignty of God, they're preserved in our Bible for our benefit also. And so as we work our way through the passage, we'll see that stability comes through unity in the first three verses, through faith in verses 4 to 7, and through renewed thinking in verses 8 to 9. But before we even go into the details of this passage, I just wanted to share something that broadly applies to all of the Bible. God isn't someone who wastes his word. I think it's a fair conclusion to say that everything the Bible instructs us to do is because there is a very real threat that we will do otherwise if left to our own devices. There'd be no point God instructing us to do or not do anything if we've got no inclination towards it. I've said a number of times in sermons, I'm a fantastic sleeper. Uh, This week Samuel and I are going away and travelling together to a conference and staying in the same accommodation together. It would be foolish for Samuel to come in the middle of the night to my room when I'm fast asleep and say, Steve, I just want you to, to calm down and have a sleep. Other than getting a pillow in the head, there's not going to be any benefit of saying that because I am calm, I am, I am asleep. So in whatever God instructs us, it's because there is a very real situation that he needs to instruct us. And we'd be naive to read any part of the Bible and say, nah, I'm immune from that. There's no way I could ever go down that way. We know the flesh and sin impacts every single one of us. Anything that you presume that you could never go down that pathway will be the things that you are vulnerable to because you have no intention of protecting yourself for whatsoever. And remember Paul's advice to the Corinthians, anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. So as we approach our passage, let's do so with sobriety and humility. So firstly, strength, stability through unity. Notice how Paul begins, as he does frequently, with the therefore. He's about to provide instructions that follow on or are an implication or an application to follow on from what he's already said. 
And the thing that he's just most recently said in the last sentence before this, therefore, is you are citizens of heaven, eagerly awaiting a saviour from there. In light of the fact that your citizenship is in heaven and your saviour is returning, I am now going to provide you instructions to live in light of who you are. And this Jesus to whom we belong to is the same one described back in chapter 2, if we go back that far, as the one who's been given a name above all name, exalted to the highest place, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, even if we just took hold of that, that we are citizens in heaven, we belong to the one who has the name above all names, the one to whom even the most militant atheist, the person who's most resistant to us, when he, Jesus, returns, they will bend their knee and declare him as Lord. If that sinks in, that'll take a real different until you think about our own life, the world we live in, the experiences in which we have. And this same Jesus is the one who says, I will be with you. I will be in you. And then with that in mind, he brings forth the command, stand firm in the Lord. Now I know we don't have a set version of the Bible that we encourage everyone to use in the church, but if you've got a 1984 version of the NIV which might say this is how you should stand firm in the Lord can I encourage you to take out your pen and scribble out the word should as though somehow this is an option of no maybe you should try this there's nothing in the Greek that suggests it should be a should this is a very much command of stand firm like this like in literal sense therefore brothers and sisters like Greek-wise, it has got brothers, but it would be understood by the recipients. That was broadly applied, so it's literally fair to say, and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm like this in the Lord, my beloved. And that's the overarching theme of all of the verses we're looking at. This command, I want you to stand firm in the Lord, and I want you to do it like this. Everything from verses 2 to 9 is really a description of the like this. So after his appeal to our citizenship in heaven, that we belong to the one who's got the name above all names, to whom every knee will bow, says we stand firm. The first thing that he approaches of what it means to stand firm and what it looks like, he says this, which might at first seem a little bit out of place. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntoki, or however she's pronounced, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So he makes the big claim, I want you all to stand firm and the first thing he talks about are two individual ladies who are not getting on. To us it might seem like that's not really a big issue. Just two women aren't getting along. Why does Paul even call them out and call them out even by name? We don't know details of the situation. They're not women who are named specifically elsewhere in the Bible. All we know of them is they were fellow gospel workers alongside Paul who something was not getting on well. To a casual reader, you think, that seems a pretty minor point. 
Just, just move on, Paul. But you can't avoid the obvious question of what has disunity between two people got to do with spiritual stability and standing firm in the Lord? Now, unfortunately, you won't need to have been a Christian too long before you have witnessed division between two Christians, whether in a church or outside of the church, whether it's between two individuals or between groups of people. And sadly, whenever disunity happens, people's eyes go off the one who we're called to stand firm in and their focus goes to an individual and usually in a negative sense about an individual or towards the situation. Anyone who's ever witnessed any degree of division, think about this for a moment. Did that help the individuals involved to grow and mature spiritually? No. Did it help the church to which they belong to to grow and mature spiritually? No. We can see why Paul highlights this issue is this affects not only the individuals being able to stand firm in the faith because they take their eyes off Christ to individuals and their things that they don't like about them, but it affects the church to take their eyes off Christ to a situation. Instead of standing firm in the Lord, people start to stand their ground against another brother or sister in Christ. Paul provides some great words in Romans 12 which apply to all of us as Christians. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's kind of wordy, but it's an important thing for all of us to take on board at any time in our life. A couple of weeks ago I introduced the vibe, the Steve paraphrase. Unlike Eugene Peterson's The Message, my Australian version was called The Vibe. So I've vibed those verses to very simple words. Treat each other with love and respect. Don't be an arrogant know-it-all. If there can't be peace between you and someone else, make sure you're not the cause of the problem. Remember, as your mum said, two wrongs don't make a right, so don't try to pay them back no matter what they did. And I should have added, that's God's job. Disunity in the church, even if it's just between two people, is never a minor issue. It is a fracture in the body of Christ, which he loved enough that he laid down his life for. Paul hasn't lost his train of thought from the initial command to stand firm in the Lord. This is part of it. It's damaging to the spiritual health of the individuals involved, and it becomes damaging to the spiritual health of the greater church as we belong to and are connected with one another. Now, this idea of unity doesn't mean ignoring issues. It doesn't mean that things shouldn't be addressed respectfully or with a desire to build up one another. 
Nor does it mean uniformity, that if we're talking about areas of doctrine, that we more must agree the exact same details. But division is a serious threat to the individuals and to the church in our ability to stand firm. So it should be avoided at all costs. We can see the urgency Paul's got. He says, I appeal with one lady, I appeal to the other lady, and to someone else in the church who's presumably believed, and I, de- and I entreat you to deal with it as well. So both individually approaches, and he says, and if they won't do it, other people, you need to help this. This is worth fighting for. Now, poor old Euodian Syntyche's relays, probably rolling their eyes, saying, oh, Grandma, what did you do? Now it's going to go down in history. You are the ones that couldn't agree on stuff. But the fact that Paul would call out individuals and call them out by name shows how serious of an issue it was to Paul. So first tip, standing firm, pursue unity both for yourself and for those around you. Secondly, stability through faith in verses 4 to 7. Now you could think, oh Steve, you're drawing a bit of a longbow here. The word faith doesn't even appear anywhere in verses 4 to 7. But I put it to you that faith is the overarching binding factor that fits together all of verses 4 to 7. Where Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We find it very hard to see sense in what is being said here, let alone apply these things outside of the context of faith. Christian faith is essentially believing that God is and does exactly what is said of him in the Bible and then choosing to live in light of that. Just let me repeat that. That Christian faith is essentially trusting that God is and does exactly what he said of himself in the Bible, and living like you genuinely believe that to be true. Without a right view of who God is, his character, and what he does, We will not rightly view who we are, the circumstances around us, or the world. We will have a skewed vision of each of those things. And without a complete confidence in his character and in the way in which he works, the commands that are in these verses will seem unreasonable and will actually seem like a bit of a burden. Rejoice in the Lord always. Don't be anxious about anything. Outside of the context of faith, those things would sound ridiculous. If you don't believe me, next time you've got a non-Christian friend who is struggling in life, say to them, rejoice in the Lord always or do not be anxious about anything and let me know how many respond to you say, thank you for encouraging me and helping me in my time of need. Outside of a foundation... There there is a God who can be trusted, who's revealed to us his nature and what he does. The call to rejoice always is nonsense. 
Now, even the best and most godly of Christian will never live a life where everything goes according to plan, where everything's good, where everything's happy, they're excited about every aspect of it. But a Christian who has a firm faith that God is exactly who he says he is and has a firm faith that God does exactly what he says he does can have reason to say, I will rejoice in the Lord always because I will view my life, I will view my identity, I will view my experiences through the lens of who my God is. I will interpret my circumstances, my life, through the lens of who God is. Because your other alternative is to reinterpret who God says he is in light of your circumstances, and that's always going to lend us down a negative path. And let me repeat the idea I've said earlier. Every single thing which God instructs us to do is because we have a natural inclination to do otherwise. It's not our natural, fleshly first response to rejoice in the Lord always. Our natural, fleshly response to when things don't go away is to tend to whinge. It's tend to tend to doubt, even though we might not verbalise it, some of the things that God has said. When we start to lose sight of who God is, what he said he would do, start doubting, it will always be detrimental to our spiritual stability. We will not stand firm. And just like unity, how we respond to a situation will affect those around us. Because what we say about our situation, what we do in response to a situation, whether we like it or not, says something about God. Says something about, is he one we trust? Is, can he rejoice in him always? Can we trust him? And he says, rather than being anxious about anything, pray about everything. We pray about everything because we've got a confident faith, God's character, his promises, what he is doing. And therefore, we don't need to be anxious. A term which I should say means unnecessary or unwarranted worry. Because we can trust in him. Does that mean that we will never feel anxious? I can guarantee you, if you put me up next to an edge of a cliff at a great height, I will feel anxious regardless of how my condition of faith is at that point in time. I can't change that. I don't like heights. Now, you can insert into that whatever thing, whatever environment tends to naturally make you feel anxious. The fact that you feel it, the fact that you feel something does not mean that you are sinning, doesn't mean that you have less faith in God. What is an indicator of your trust in God and his character in what he does is what you choose to do, how you choose to live in light of that situation. When I choose to live based on my feelings, then I begin to question and doubt the character of God and I proclaim to others a God who is lesser than the way he's revealed himself. But when I choose to live by faith despite what I feel, not only does that help me grow my own spiritual growth, 
but it encourages others who can be seen encouraged that our God can be trusted. Strengthens your own faith and spurs others around you to do the same. And what's the promise of God to those who have a faith so robust, so depending upon what God has declared of himself, to respond in such a way? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now I met with one of the local councillors on Friday morning to talk about um, things concerning Westbrook. Most of the answers she was giving me were passed on by other council workers and there were things that there was kind of like, maybe this might happen, this could be a good uh, possible thing, but there was a whole lot of maybes. And that's not to talk down the councillor, she was just communicating um, things on behalf of others. Our God is not a God of maybes. Our God doesn't say, if you place your faith in me, maybe, maybe I will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When you've got a mindset that rests upon a firm confidence that God is who he says he is, he does what he says he does, there is peace confidence and joy now I'm someone who naturally doesn't worry much at all but still I'd be really embarrassed to have a log of all of the times I caused myself grief by choosing to worry about things that I didn't need to worry about and the sort of things that we tend to worry about they're the things that the world around us expects this is going to shake your foundations but in reality in faith in God creates that an opportunity not only for your own foundations to be strengthened but to encourage others that they can do the same and experiencing the peace of God to trust that God is exactly like he said he is and live like you believe it and the third of these is stability through renewed thinking now it's often been said you are what you think when the proverbs it says as a man thinks in his heart so he is. So therefore, the things that we think about, the things we allow our mind to dwell upon, are not insignificant. They affect how we live, what we do. So as Paul is wrapping up, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Because what occupies your mind does affect your outlook on life, the things in which you do, it's important that your mind is set on the right things. Now where these words say, think on these things, it literally means to occupy your mind with these things. Fix your mind on these things. Set your mind on these things without wanting to sound like a broken record God reminds us of things we should do because our natural inclination is to do otherwise so not only is it helpful to be reminded what types of things we should allow to occupy, consume our thinking and it's a very healthy list that's probably worth memorising or at least looking back to to think about your own thought life But sometimes identifying what would be the opposite and what that would look like is helpful as well. 
Like I've put down there on the left a list of the things that Paul has given and then in the middle what would be the opposite of that and some might, in the English sense, might not seem to correlate as the opposite but in terms of the meaning of the word behind, um, the Greek word behind the what is prescribed, uh, that would be the opposite. And then a list of examples of what it would look like to be living in the opposite of those things. Lies, gossip, doubt, manipulation, deception, false accusations, mistreatment, lust, filthy language, selfishness, pride, arrogance, worldliness. That's not an extensive list. But it's sort of, as you look at something like that, I'm sure all of us will look at it and say, yep, tick, tick, and but not in a proud way. No one wants to be proud. They're ticking off things in their life that aren't right. But sometimes we just don't realise how much these things can and do get into our mind without us even pursuing it or thinking about it. But whenever we think and set our mind upon things that are contrary to the character of God, not only does it affect our spiritual, spiritual life, it kind of says that I find more satisfaction in things other than what God has provided. Questions his character questions his goodness and the things he prescribes to us and whether they are for our benefit. But what's the promise attached to this idea to set your mind on these things? And the God of peace will be with you. Now when I looked through that or put together that list and thought about it, it was quite confronting. Some of the things in that list of examples of what it looked like to do the opposite of what we should be setting our mind upon Say, some of those describe me. Perhaps there's some things to confess. Perhaps there's some things to say, God changed my heart. Because it's all well and good to say, I should be doing this, but I'm doing this, I'm going to stop doing this, I'm going to start doing this. But if we don't change at a heart level, our behaviour change is not going to be worth much at all. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You think about the things that you love. So it's not a mind change that needs to happen, it's a heart change. So what? I can't imagine there's a single Christian who doesn't want to stand firm in the Lord. It's not the desire of their heart. We did say this isn't a comprehensive three-step guide. These are the only three things. And I'm, I'm sure you can think of other things and maybe even more important things. But I think as we've gone through Philippians 4, there's probably some things that you'd never really thought of in the sense of how these things affect my own spiritual well-being and how they affect the spiritual well-being of those who are around me. Because we tend to think about things on an individualistic perspective. Church is a body. We belong to one another. What happens to one affects the other. Every single thing we've spoken about this morning, unity, faith, our thinking, don't just affect you. They affect people around you. Affect them in a, in a good way and a bad way. If it's going a bad way, it affects people in a negative sense. But in a good sense, what is given to us and provided for us in Christ can affect others in a positive sense to help strengthen them. 
when it comes to unity. If you have strained relationships with someone else in the church or another brother or sister in Christ, I would urge you on the authority of the Bible, and because we've seen how important this is to Paul, to deal with that. And if it remains a strained thing, as Paul says in in Romans 12, make sure that's not your fault. Make sure it's not because you haven't done something. And even if it's not you, even if it's people in your circles, just like Paul encouraged some others within the church to help those other two ladies, it should be our desire to help one another as well. Regarding faith, we need to believe that God is everything he says he is and does everything he says he does. To come to a right view of God and to stand upon that as our foundation allows us in the middle of even the deepest and darkest of things to rejoice in him knowing he is good. He works all things to good for those who love him and called according to his purpose. He can be trusted. We can bring things all before him in prayer without needing to worry because he hears and he answers according to his good purposes and my what is best for me. Our perception of life and experience needs to be interpreted through the lens of who God is, not the other way around. Don't change your mind about who God is as you interpret your own circumstances. What Paul promises to set you free from the pain of unnecessary worry as you cling to him in prayer. And lastly, transform thinking. Now it's been said, you become what you love. You become the things that you consume you and you think about. So set your mind on things that are going to help you and be beneficial in your spiritual growth. We've highlighted a whole number of things that if these are things that occupy your mind, they're not going to help you spiritually or the people around you. You need to start being actively filtering what you should allow to take priority in your mind and what you simply just trust to God in prayer. As we looked at a list of negative examples, maybe God even poked at your conscience. Maybe he didn't poke at your conscience, but if, if they're in that negative list, there's still things that we need to be bringing before God. God, change my heart. I don't want to dishonour you in any way, but I don't want to be a detriment to my own spiritual health and the spiritual health of others around me. I want to grow. I want to encourage others to grow. Not just for my benefit, but for the glory, honour, and the power of God might be seen in my life, in our lives, to the praise of God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you have provided everything we need to live the life you've called us to live. Lord, we acknowledge that so often your word confronts us and it needs to confront us because left to our own devices, we so easily wander from you. We set up a, a wisdom of our own that is different than yours, that works to our own detriment and to the detriment of others around us. But Lord, in the middle of all that, you have also shown us that you have not only provided everything we need to help us to grow to maturity, 
but that has granted us the potential to to not only to be strengthened ourselves, but to be to spur one another on as others can see the trust that we place in you, as we can see um, us seeing that you are sufficient in all things. We might encourage others, they too may have confidence to respond to you in faith. Thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your patience with us because we know how often, and I know how often I get it wrong. But we need your forgiveness and we need you to change our hearts that we might reflect who you are. Lord, that we might present you well to one another to encourage one another and that we might present a saviour who is worth trusting and following to those who don't yet know you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.